Uh, but I'm here, so that's the important part. If you guys would turn with me to James chapter 1. Ignore what's in your bulletin because I, uh, I did the wrong thing. Uh, but it is on the screen if you care to follow along with that. James chapter 1. And when you get that, would you stand, if you could, to honor God's word this morning? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brethren and sistern, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now if any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should, expect to receive, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower in the field. For the sun rises together with its scorching wind, dries up the grass, its flowers fall off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away with, while pursuing his activities." Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when, the, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am tempted, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and is enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth so that by the word of truth, so that we may would be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this moment that we could gather here today and worship you and think about you and, and think about your word, Lord, that you've given us, God, so freely and graciously for instruction and just to know you better. And I pray that during this time you'll just speak through me and, and to all of us and uh, use your word to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So I've been going over the book of James in Sunday school with the youth, um, and, and it's been kind of a period where I've been kind of forced to look at it a little deeper than I have in the past. And this was actually the first sermon that I preached here uh, four or five years ago. I lose track now, probably closer to four years ago. Um, and so you might be wondering why I'm preaching it again. Well, it's not necessarily because I think you need to hear it again, it's just that uh, through experiences over the past few years and, and, and taking a deeper look at this, I realized that there are things that maybe perhaps I didn't explain well. There are things that maybe I didn't mention that I, I could have or should have. And there's things that I, I look back and I realize I got wrong. So, um, so that's why we're here. And so this is the book of James. It's a letter written to the church dispersed abroad. And uh, as, I'm, as I'm thinking about that term, dispersed abroad, I'm thinking about the, the class that I'm currently taking. It's a biblical studies class because the church has been gracious enough to help me to take classes that are going to benefit me 
with, with learning to preach the word better and learning to teach better. And so this particular class that I'm in is a biblical studies. It studies the geography, the history, the cultures, and just every bit of background that you could find behind the Bible and what was going on during that period of time. And it helps you to kind of see a bigger picture uh, of what was going on, not just with Israel, but everything around it. And so he's writing this to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed abroad. And, and this was a long time before Jesus' day, um, when you had about at least four different empires who had a big impact on Israel. You first have the Babylonian Empire who came along, and when they came, they were brutal. They destroyed a lot of things, and they deported many different people uh, to a few different places, but back to Babylon, where they, they were actually treated better back in Babylon than they would have been in Israel if they had stayed. And so Isaiah the prophet actually encourages them to stay in Babylon, settle down and live your lives there, have, you know, get families and, and, and find jobs, because if you come back, you're more likely going to have it worse here than if you were to stay there. And, and so during that period of Babylon, there were many that also fleed uh, to get safety, they went to Egypt. And so there were many of them in Egypt. And uh, years and, and years and years of Babylon ruling and, and just kind of keeping their thumb on Israel and keeping them oppressed. And then after them, the Assyrian Empire came along. And they did a lot of the same things. They were very cruel people. They had a lot of cruel torture techniques and they just were not pleasant people to be around. Um, but they... they deported many at the same time. And so you have two empires that took many of the Jews out of their lands. And then came the Persian period, the Persian empire that came in, and they were actually really gracious towards Israel. Um, they allowed many of them to go back to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their wall, to worship their God the way it was. They began to create, they began to rebuild things and rebuild Jerusalem. And so that was a good period. But even during that time, there were many Jews that didn't go home because they didn't grow up in Israel or Judah. Uh, and, and so they were comfortable where they at. They decided to stay because that was all they knew. And then we have a period that came after that, which was the Greek Empire. And the Greek Empire came in and what they immediately started doing was trying to oppose their philosophies, their ideas. Um, there were periods where they were gracious towards the Jews, but there were many periods where they weren't. And at one point, they founded the, uh, the place Alexandria in Egypt, and they, or they deported at least 24,000 Jews to Alexandria. And so, and I, I think Roman did a lot of the same stuff like that. And this is kind of currently when the Roman Empire is still there. Um, but the point is, is they're dispersed. They're everywhere. They're here, they're there. Like many, many of them did not come back to their homeland. They were comfortable where they were. They had jobs. They had all those things. And so James is sending this letter to all of them because after Jesus ascended unto heaven, before he ascended unto heaven, he told them to go and spread the gospel. And so many of the apostles and followers went out and they shared the gospel with these Jews who were dispersed abroad, that were not in their homeland. And as a result, many of them became Christians. And so this letter is to them. And he's really trying to accomplish a couple of different things with this letter. He's, number one, trying to encourage them as they're going through trials. He's trying to encourage them. They're going through persecution. They're dealing with various things, things of which most of us don't really know anything about. And he's, he's telling them to endure. Put your faith in Jesus. It may not be pleasant, but keep going. And you'll, you'll see that God will do something great through that. But he's also encouraging them 
to stick to the teachings and the ways of Jesus Christ. Because there was the temptation among many of them to trust in money, trust in possessions, and trust in things that weren't going to benefit them. And these things draw, they drew the Christians away from God, and they struggled with that. And and so this letter is to them. And so just a little bit of a background. Um, So I want to pick apart this first verse here. And I know it's just a greeting, so there may not seem like there's much there. Uh, But I want to zoom in on a key word that's important to all of us. And that's the word servant, a servant of God. Now, James could have easily just said, I'm an apostle. He could have just as easily said, I'm Jesus' half-brother. But he didn't throw that in their faces because he wanted to show that like, he's no greater than anyone else. And so when we look at the term servant, you cannot be a follower of Christ and not be a servant. Because when you surrender your life to Christ, you're saying, I'm coming to you to serve first God and then serve others. And a lot of times in our culture, we don't look at the word servant as something pleasant. You don't see very many people lining up to go uh, work at a fast food restaurant or go to collect trash off the streets. It's most of the time that's kind of beneath us. You know, and with the fast food thing, I get it because I've heard horror stories of customers who are being served, like just blowing up and, and not taking things you know, as they go and not trying to be understanding towards that person. And so some of those things, they make sense. Like, I don't really want to do that. But as a servant of God, it's a command to humble ourselves. It's a command to not think highly of ourselves. That by first, we, we obey the commandments. By loving God, we exalt God. And he is higher than us. He's greater than us. And then by the second one, we learn to exalt others over ourselves. And so that's the whole point of being servant. And this is important because if you're not have the mindset of a servant, you you might just need to reposition your heart or you may not have actually given him your life if you have never surrendered to him as a servant. To to surrender as Jesus, as Lord, is to humble yourself and to follow him as a servant of God. And this is important because all the things that James is writing are mostly to his servants. The promises that he gives are to those who have surrendered their lives and, and maybe they're struggling with a few things, just as all of us Christians do. They're immature. They're, they're trying to grow. Um, but, but you cannot receive the promises unless you surrender as a servant to Christ. That is the, that's repentance, turning away from the way the world thinks to follow him. And so, so just focusing on that as a servant. Do, do we have a servant's heart? Do, are we living like a servant? Or, or are we mostly, as most of us Christians in America, we, we want to be served as to serving others. And so that's the question to be asked. So he goes on and he says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Now, the first time that I preached this, um, I, I can remember a lot of what I said. I said, how do you consider it joy? How am I supposed to do that when I'm suffering and struggling in life? And, and the way that I approached it is I said, well, we got to go and we got to pray and we got to talk to God. And you know what, what Paul says, surrendering, your, your, giving him your prayers and, and his petitions. And then the peace of God will surpass all understanding. And once you have that peace of God, you can consider all joy. I was wrong. I mean, I was very wrong on that because James is not saying that. He's not telling us to go find peace and then consider it joy. He's just telling us to consider it joy, regardless of how we feel. Because a lot of times we base our actions, our behavior, our thoughts on how we feel. He's not saying that. He's saying to consider it a great joy. Look at it as something good, regardless of how you feel. 
Look at it as something that's going to benefit you regardless how you feel. And that's hard. And every single one of us in here who have gone through trials, that's hard to look at it as something good. And there were a few weeks back in my life where I was kind of struggling with some things. Um, many of you know that I have a lot going on right now. And a few weeks back, I was, I was working on assignment uh, for school, and I submitted that assignment on my break, my lunch break. And then I looked at somebody else who was in the same group, and I realized they posted way more than I did. And suddenly, I'm starting to panic. Like, I did this wrong. So I messaged the professor, but as soon as I messaged the professor, I had to go back to school and work. Um, so that was kind of like a, a panicking moment in my life, and I didn't hear from the professor till the next day. I did the right assignment. The other person did way too much. But at the same time, there was just like panic, a feeling that I'm not too fond of. And when I got to work, that panic turned into anger, like a, a deep anger. And it was no longer just about the assignment. It was about everything that was going wrong in life. Not necessarily wrong, but it was just a lot. This is a lot of chaos, a lot of chaos at work with all the different shorthandedness and, and, and things are not the same every day. I'm a, lot, I'm a guy that kind of needs stability and a consistent work schedule and, and, and then dealing with homework and then wishing that I could do more at home and then trying to balance that with what I do here. And it was very difficult. So much so that like as I was going, um, all of a sudden, like, God brought this verse to my mind because, see, you see, two days prior to that, we went over this verse in Sunday school. And so God brought that to my mind. And in that moment, I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I don't feel like looking at this as joy. And so I started thinking of how I could do that. And as I'm going, I started thinking, well, maybe I should just focus on the promises of God. And so I focus on, okay, God, you're with me. I know you're with me. I know you will never leave or forsake me. I know you are working all things out for my good. And I know that you are using this to test my faith and make it stronger. And you know what happened to my attitude and my mood? Absolutely nothing. In fact, for the next few days after that, I was still angry. And as I'm reading what he's saying, I'm starting to realize that's the point. He's not telling us that this is going to make us feel better. He's not telling us this is going to make us happy, that it's going to make everything okay. But what he is saying is to consider it joy. In other words, don't think the way you have been. Don't think based off your emotions and how you feel because those can be deceiving. Take your mind off of those emotions and set them on the truths. I know that God is with me regardless of how I feel. And I know it because of what I've experienced in the past. I've been through a lot, maybe not as much as some people, but I've been through a lot in my life, through the manic episodes and the trials and the, and the joblessness and all the things that I went through. And I look back and I look, okay, I know these things. It's not an issue that it makes me feel better, but I, I know that God is with me. And I know he's not going to leave me. And I know he's going to work these things out for my good. And I know that he is testing my faith to make it stronger. The last sermon that I preached, I preached on the church being persecuted. And I talked about how we should look at those who came before us and those who are in other countries so that we can see that we have it pretty good. And, and the whole point of that was not to make us feel better. The whole point on that was to like focus on the facts there, that we have freedoms, we have liberties, we have things that other people don't have or didn't have before us. 
And, and based on those facts, based on the liberties we have, we live for Christ, regardless of how we feel. And that's the same thing it is with this, is we focus on the promises, and based on the promises that God has given us, we live our lives based on that, regardless of how we feel. It's not easy, but it's what James is telling us to do. And overall, it's what God tells us to do throughout the whole Bible. To not trust and lean on our own understanding, but to trust Him and His promises. To get ourselves to think differently until we can endure until it becomes something we think we know to something we absolutely know and it drives us to respond differently to the trials in our lives and that's the whole point of that and my mouth is dry so <laughs> as we go on it says why, why why do we need to consider it great, great joy because you know there's the word no, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So once again, not about feelings, it's about the knowledge of what God does through our trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so you may be complete or maybe mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, So this word test here, um, sometimes we might think like, it's a test, like it's up to us to pass it, right? That God's up there and he's looking down on us and he's saying, hmm, I wonder how they're going to respond to this one. And, and that's not it at all because God already knows how we're going to respond. That's, it's not to see how we're going to respond. The word test here is something that's found throughout the New Testament. And uh, it's actually best quoted by Peter. He gives a pretty good explanation of what that looks like. First Peter, um, and I forgot to write down. Okay. Let me see if I can find it. I'm just going to read here. Blessed be the God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, because his mercy, he has given us a new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You rejoice in this, even for now, for a short time. If necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which is through perishable, through perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about that is refined by fire. And so the old process of the way that they did gold back then to get the impurities out is the goldsmith would heat the gold up and then the impurities would rise to the surface and then he would scrape out the impurities and he would continue to do that to get the impurities out so that it would be more valuable. And that's what Peter is saying about our faith, that our faith is valuable. My faith is the most important part of my life because I don't even want to think about where I would be without my faith. I don't want to think about where I'd be if I didn't have hope in God because of the faith that he's been, that he's given me. But the fact is, is that I don't have the faith because it just happened overnight. I have the faith because of the trials I went through and I saw his hand in all of it, and I saw his faithfulness in spite of how I felt, in spite of the fact I couldn't see the promise that he was going to work those things out to my good. I look back and I see him in those trials, and my faith is stronger, and we need our faith. We, need, we don't need our faith to be less strong. We don't need our faith to stay stagnant. We need our faith to grow daily, and that's what the trials are for. We don't want the trials, but we need the trials. 
And so as we're going through trials, we need to look at it the way James is saying that we need to look at it. Now, if any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. So wisdom. Um, I used this illustration before with the youth. I've used it up here before, but I like the illustration because it really stuck with me. Uh, if you think about knowledge versus wisdom, a tomato is a fruit. Right? We all know that. But wisdom tells us not to put the tomato in the fruit salad. I, I hate tomatoes altogether. Like I'll drink the juice, I'll, I'll do the ketchup, you know, but tomatoes, uh, I just don't like them. I've tried. Sarah's tried to get me. No, thank you. But <clears throat> wisdom and knowledge are two different things. So another example would be if the stove is on, I know that it's hot, but wisdom tells me not to touch the stove. And so godly wisdom tells us how to navigate our lives in this world. And, and that's why, like, that's why David says in the 23rd Psalm, he says, he leads me beside still waters. When we get God's wisdom and we live our lives based on that wisdom instead of our own understanding, he guides us through this life. And beside still waters where we're safe, he wants that for us, but we need his wisdom in order to do that. And he is chock full of wisdom that he wants to give us. He's not going to hold back on us. He's not going to look, look at us and think like, we well, need more wisdom. Like he wants to give us that wisdom. And so... But there's something else that goes on here uh, that we need to think about. He continues to say, But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should expect to receive nothing, should, expect to receive, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So, I don't know about you, the first several times I came to that verse, it's, it kind of discouraged me. It's like, man, man, you tell me that if I go to God... With a little bit of doubt in my heart, I'm not going to receive anything? That's kind of a discouraging thought. And yet, there has been many times in my life where I'm pursuing God with my life, and that's important when we get into this a little later. I'm pursuing God with my life, and I come to Him, but there's a part of me that's like, I, I, know, I, know you, I, don't know if I, I don't know if you're going to actually answer this prayer, God. I'm going to pray it anyways, but there's a part of me that's not sure and there's been many of those prayers where he's answered in spite of my momentary doubt. And you know what happened from that? He built my faith. And the next time I went to him, I prayed more. He built my faith from that. And the next time I went to him, more faith. And the next time I went to him, more faith. And there are certain areas in my life that when I go to God to pray for, I have no doubt that he's going to answer that prayer. But it started with a lack of faith and a little doubt. You don't need to just take my experience and my example for it. We can talk about some that are in the Bible. Jesus on a ship with his disciples. And this storm begins to hit this ship and rock it all over the place. And his disciples start panicking. They're, they're pretty sure they're going to die. All the while Jesus, this Messiah who called them for this life of ministry, is sleeping on this boat. And so they wake him up and they say, save us. And he stands up and he says, peace be still. And he turns to his disciples and says, you of little faith. There's doubt there. There's doubt there. And yet he still answered their request. And then I think of the time where the guy came up to Jesus, wanting his child to be healed. And he said to Jesus, if you can, make him well. Something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. Probably not, we can talk about that later. But... Um, 
make him well. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible if you believe. And what does he do? He heals his son. But after the guy says, I do believe, but help my unbelief. In other words, there's a little bit of doubt there. But he still heals his son. And I guarantee you that he walked away from that situation not doubting Jesus in the way that he did before. Now, there are circumstances where God allows things to happen because of a lack of doubt. I think of Peter stepping on the boat trying to walk to Jesus. And and there's this moment of doubt and he starts to sink. You know, and Jesus has to pull him out of the water. And he asks, "Why, why did you doubt? And I don't understand why the various situations. I know that God's will is different in certain circumstances, and so I can't answer as to why in some circumstances that doesn't happen, in some circumstances that do does. Um, but the truth is there are examples of that. So, so, so why does it say no doubting? Let's go on. Let, let's think about what comes after this. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So, I don't know about you, but there's times where I go to God in prayer, and there's a little bit of doubt in there, but I'm not unstable in every single way of my life. And so if we look at the context, and we're going to show some more context because this is important to camp out here for a minute. If we look at the context, what he's saying is those who are constantly doubting God. And the evidence of that constant doubt is that they are double-minded. Now what does double-minded mean? Two different minds, two different ways of thinking, two different ways of behaving, two different pursuits in life. I think about an article I read not too long ago. Um, this article was going on to say, in our culture, in our society, because of our technological advances, more people than ever are multitasking. And um, so you'd be able to do two different things at once. But the problem is, is that studies show that we can't think about two different things at once. And so you have to bounce back and forth between the other. And because you're trying to do two different things at once, you don't give enough attention to one that you should. And so you're losing focus and things aren't getting done as well as they could be. I think about what Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. It's impossible. And so that's kind of the way it is. And so like an example of my life of where that's been is like... um, I don't, I don't do sermon notes. I, it's something that I've tried to do. I sat down to try to do sermon notes, but like my mind goes everywhere about other things I want to say, so I can't actually sit down. So I do all the preparation in my head as I go, um, including at work. And that's where it kind of gets a little hairy because I'll be at work and I'll be thinking about my sermon. I'll be thinking about what God wants me to say and I'll be putting it into words and I'll be putting it in an order um, that I think that God's wanted me to put it in. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm trying to work at the same time. And I'm spending more time on my sermon prep than I am at working, and as a result, I miss a trash can. <laughs> or I forget to put a bag in a trash can. And there's been times where I haven't come back to the next, I have not come back until the next day and discovered I put no bag in there. That's always fun. Um, or I'll dust mop a pile, and then I'll leave it, and the next day I'll come back and I'll notice that I left a pile of dirt on the floor. Not all the time, okay? I'm not, I'm not that slouchy all the time. I don't miss things like that all the time. But there are times where it happens, and the reason that it happens is because I'm trying to focus on two different things at once, and I give attention to one thing more than the other, and as a result, I become unstable at work. And so what does that look like in the life of the Christian? 
Well, let's use more context to interpret this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8 of James says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This shows us what the word double-minded means. Okay, so it's, it's talking about two people. It's talking about people who have a double mind. They're pursuing God, but at the same time, they're pursuing the things that God says not to do. And as a result, they're unstable in their lives. But as they pursue what God says not to pursue, it shows that they're truly doubting God's goodness. Okay, so I, I don't think... I don't believe that this is what the so-called carnal-minded Christian is. Okay, so if you don't know what the carnal-minded Christian is, it's someone who says, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. And because he died for my sins, I'm going to live however I want. There's eternal security there. I don't have to worry about falling from grace. And so I'm just going to live however I want. And they indulge in sin every single day, regardless as to what God says about sin. Because Jesus does say that we have to repent. We have to turn from that. And there's never been any evidence of repentance. You're not a carnal Christian. And you're not a Christian at all. Because that's the command that Jesus gives us. Turn away from sin. Our repentance right up front is not going to be perfect repentance. But when we give our lives to Christ, there's something inside of us that tells us to turn away from it. And we, if you are truly a Christian, the Holy Spirit will not let you live your life like that until the day you die. I believe this is talking about a Christian who struggles. And so I want to give my test, a little bit of my testimony as an example here. So about three years ago, I got rebaptized in this church uh, because the reason I did that is because I thought that I was saved at six years old. Um, but there were things that indicated that I wasn't. But I didn't get saved till about seven years ago. Um, I was worried about like, what you guys would think when I got rebaptized or what my family would think, but I knew that I needed to be obedient to God regardless of what anybody thought. And so I got rebaptized. But one of the main reasons that I knew that I was not a Christian prior to that was the way that I looked at sin, the way that I thought about sin. You see, when I was younger, junior high and high school, I began to. In- I began to indulge in pornography. And it's not something I like to talk about, but it's something that I, I've talked about with the youth a little bit, but it's something that, that I did. And at first, it wasn't like a big deal. I didn't do it every single day. It was every once in a while, every occasionally. And the most that I was worried about, though, was getting caught. I didn't really care about what God said about it. I didn't really care that I needed to repent. I just did it. And then as I went further in life, the first manic episode happened, I began to turn to it even more. And then I get out of school and I, uh, I you know, have my second manic episode back in 2010 and I start to turn to it every single day. Because I didn't have a job for two years after there, so every single day I was looking at pornography. The thing of it is, is that I did not care what God said about it. I had no intention of repenting, believed myself to be a Christian, so I didn't think it mattered at all. In that moment in my life existed within me one mind. I had no concern about what God said to do with sin until seven years ago. Seven years ago, because it wasn't just pornography, there was a lot of different things there. Seven years ago, I, I realized that that road led to destruction. 
I realized that that gave me no hope inside. And so I realized that I needed God, a relationship with God. So I put my faith in Jesus and I began to follow him. And as I followed him, all of a sudden everything just got better. It didn't. My trials and my circumstances were still hard and difficult. I had a difficulty like being happy and joyful. Again, it's not about feelings, but at the time, you know, I was thinking it is. Um, so I would go to God and I, I would pray to God and I would ask him to help with me. But then there was that part of me that like doubted him and his goodness. And so I would go back and I would turn towards the other things that I did before. And I know that there are many people that say, no, as soon as you come to Jesus, you're delivered of that. Then why did the apostles take so much time to tell people to not turn back to their old way of behavior? Because the answer is they were struggling with it. And so that's, that's where I was at. But the thing of it now is it was a whole different thing. Like I was struggling with that, but I didn't want to do it anymore. Right? So I would turn to Jesus, but then I would be turned. I felt like I was being pulled back and forth. Um, and I can tell you from personal experience, in that period of my life, I was completely unstable in all of my ways. I could not move forward as a Christian, and it was just chaos. Wanted to follow Jesus, wanted to be, but there was a part of me that was doubting, and so I turned back to the things that I did before. And this is key, because that is very, 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 very different than momentary doubt when we approach God. Two different things. And so there are some who would disagree with me. There are commentaries who don't say that. I want to use a little more context for Scripture, because this is an important issue. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities are separating you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Israel had a history of doubting God. And the evidence of their doubt towards God is that they would turn to all these other gods as a result. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. That when we doubt God, we're doubting his goodness. We're turning to all of these other things instead of turning to God. That's double-mindedness. Again, very different than momentary doubt. I believe James is warning us not to doubt. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to answer every single prayer we come to him with, because there are some things that are just in his will and are not in his will. But it's important because at the moment you say that you have to have no doubt at all, you're saying to that person, if their prayers aren't answered, it's your fault. It's your fault that they're not answered because you don't have enough faith. God's promises are to us regardless of of how much we can possibly muster up faith to trust him. If we're pursuing him with our lives, if we're trusting him, instead of doubting and turning to other things. There's going to be two examples that James gives us of what double-mindedness would come out to look like, the potential of double-mindedness could come out of. The first one he gives is person of humble circumstances. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. So the humble circumstances, not having a lot, is the temptation during those periods of not having a lot is that we look at what others have, we look at what they have going on in life, the money that they have, and we think, man, if I just had that, my life would be better. Instead of trusting God, 
It's called coveting. And it's called setting your mind on something else other than God. It's a form of double-mindedness. And I don't, I don't have humble circumstances all in my life, but there are certain circumstances in my life that are humble. You know, I never dreamed of being like a custodian when I grew up. It wasn't my dream job. Uh, but at the same time, I remember hearing this person on the radio when I got out of high school, and it kind of stuck with me. It said, if you're too good to scrub a toilet, then you're too good to serve God. <laughs> And that stuck with me. That was long before I was a custodian. And that's not why I became a custodian. That's just how it happened. It may have been like a foretelling of what was going to happen. I don't know. But that stuck with me. And yes, there's been times where it's like, man, I just wish I had this job or that job. It would be so much better. This is kind of humiliating at times. But at the same time, like I have to think about the broader picture that God, God put me there. That when I moved here to Altamont, the same week that I moved here, Pastor Bill approached me about being youth minister. And that same week, the position opened up at the school. And so it's easy for me to say that I want this or I want that. But the truth is, is God's got me where he wants me, no matter what. And I have to trust him in that until he says differently. Because if I began to, if I began to keep focusing on what I could have, what I could have, then I'm doubting his goodness. I'm doubting his sovereignty in my life. And I'm basically saying, God, what you, don't have, what you have for me is not good enough. And that's doubt. And that doubt draws us away from God. That's why James said in chapter 4, draw near to God. He'll draw to you. Like if we're drawing away from God, we're not drawing near to Him. And we're double-minded. Like I said, my whole life is not humble circumstances. I have more than what I need. I, I've been blessed, not necessarily by riches, but I've been blessed by being having what I need as I need it. And then it goes on to say, but let the, riches, let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises together with its scorching wind, dries up the grass and the flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. So, you have the rich person, on the other hand, who doesn't have humble circumstances. They have more than what they need. And, and, and sometimes we have a tendency when we have more than what we need to turn to what we have instead of turning to God. It could be hobbies. It could be money. It could be, it could be cars or possessions or houses. Like It could be any of those things. Not necessarily those things. Like We could still have things and not make them our priority. But sometimes we do have a tendency to turn to those things for comfort. And, and, and to, to help us feel some sort of sense of happiness during that time instead of trusting God. But the question is, like, what happens when those things go away? What happens when you lose the salary that's a high-paying salary and God says, no, you're no longer going to make this much, you're going to make this much. And so you're going to have to adjust the way you live to be able to live off that. I mean, are we going to lose hope? Are we going to be discouraged and be angry at God? If so, that shows that we're doubting His goodness. Shows that we're doubting Him and what He has for us. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. Okay, so the first time I read this, and maybe you didn't read it the same that I did, like I, I started thinking about the crown of life being heaven, um, or eternal life. And I started thinking about, well, wait a minute. He says, for those who endure. 
Like, you mean it's up to me, like endurance, it's up to my endurance to, to get life eternal? And, you know, I finally realized as I was reading different scriptures that that's not what it's saying at all. Just briefly going to talk about this. Like, what he's saying is that if we endure, it's because we have true faith. And if our faith is true faith, we will endure no matter the circumstances. And the evidence of that is our faith. The evidence that we love him and the evidence that our faith is in him, that we continue to pursue. If This is why Jesus says the one that endures till the end will be saved. Because it's the one that has true faith and that faith keeps them going no matter what. So it goes on to say, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So I know we may not have the mindset of saying, God, you're tempting me. But sometimes we can do this. Sometimes it can be kind of subtle. God, why did you put that thought in my heart if I'm not supposed to have it? Why, did you, why are you showing me all these things if I can't have these things? And at that moment, we're saying that God is tempting us. James tells us that that's not in God's character to tempt us. And he goes on to say something very poetically beautiful. Actually, let's, let's get to that in a little bit, because 14 comes between there. He says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires, then after... Desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so it's talking about the reason that we, that we go after these things is not because God is putting that desire or he's waving something in front of us that we can't have, but because in us there is a desire to want and to do the things that God says not to do. And that desire only changes when we walk with God, when we learn to trust him, when we learn to indulge in his goodness and who he is. Now we'll go on. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So a lot of people say that James, the book of James, kind of like an outline of of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And there's a lot of similarities in there, and that that makes sense to say that. So when it comes to this part, I start to think of when Jesus said to those who were listening, he said, if you who are evil can give good gifts to your children, how much much more can your Father in heaven give good gifts to you? And within that part of the sermon, that's when some sort of prosperity gospel preacher comes in and says, Jesus wants you to have good gifts. He wants you to have that car. He wants you to have that amount of money. He wants you to have that job. He wants you to have that promotion. He wants that for you. And there's a whole list of those preachers out there that a lot of Christians listen to and don't think anything of it. Why would God want us to have those things? Those things are not good gifts. And Jesus shows us to turn away from indulging ourselves in this life. Those things rot. Those things rust. Those things perish. Money doesn't last. They're not good gifts. In comparison to what God actually wants to give us, they're terrible gifts. He goes on to say, every good and perfect gift is from above 
coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like a shifting shadow. There's no greater gift that God could give us than himself. There's no greater gift that God could give us than his love, his mercy, his salvation, his presence in our lives, his wisdom. So in a way, he ties this back to the the verse where it talks about wisdom. Like he wants to give us wisdom. He ties, like he's... Sometimes I used to think that all these verses were just placed here randomly because of the way it read. But the truth is is that he ties it all together. But what he's saying is that you're busy pursuing all of these different things that you're missing out on the good gifts that God wants to give you. You're living a double-minded life. You're saying you want to follow Christ, but you're indulging in things that are going to perish and not last. And they'll leave you empty. I know that feeling all too well. Go for the good gifts. Go for the good things that God wants to give you. They're better than any other gift that we could receive from this world. He goes on to say that he does not change. And that's a very good thing. He doesn't change for the worse, and he doesn't change for the better. And you might be tempted to think, well, wouldn't it be good if he changed for the better? No, because that would mean that he's imperfect. And he doesn't do that. Why is that important? Because he gives us promises. His character is shown through his promises. Who he is is shown through what he promises to us. And if he were to change, that would also mean that his promises stand a chance to change. God does not act like us. He does not wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He loves us every single day of our lives. And there's a lot of people that say that the God of the Old Testament is very different than the God of the New Testament. That's very untrue. The reason I say that is because both God's love and both God's wrath is in both Testaments. And I think about the fact that like, the greatest display of that is the cross. That Jesus was on the cross. He stepped in our place for our sins, for the things that we've done against God. And he took the full wrath of God. And in that moment, that showed two things. First of all, it showed that he hates sin. He absolutely despises sin. That's why he poured his wrath out. But at the same time, it also shows that he loves us because he punished Jesus instead of us. So that we can come to him. We can believe in Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' goodness can be attributed to us. I don't deserve God's righteousness. I don't deserve for anybody to look at me and say that I'm righteous, because I'm not. There are so many ways where I still mess up in my life. But because of my faith in Jesus, God looks at me and my life, and he doesn't see all of my mistakes. He doesn't see all the areas that I've messed up, the, the indulgences that I had before I was a Christian. He looks at me and sees Christ's perfect righteousness. I don't deserve that. And I haven't earned that. I never could. And by this whole thing that Jesus did for us on the cross, by taking the wrath in our place, it says, by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we could be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Start wrapping it up here. Um, I, Sarah gave an illustration that like, I hadn't thought of it this way for the first time in class, what the first fruits were. 
And she talked about an ear of corn that oftentimes when, when a corn stalk comes off, the first corn that's off that stalk is the best corn. And, uh, and basically we tied that into this verse as we were teaching it downstairs. And I thought that was a good example. Um, that we're valuable to God. Because through faith in Jesus, by his word, we've been born again. You know, God loves all people, but there's a special relationship that he has with us. And so to tie this all together, the reason why he's saying this to us is because he wants us to know we're valuable to God. He wants us to know that God is, is more than willing to show his love, his mercy, and pour out all these good gifts on us. But we have to trust him. Even in the midst of a trials, when we can't feel it, we can't see it, we can't, we can't have no idea that God's going to work it out for good, but we can trust him in that. And we can lean on his promises even when we don't feel it. We can know that he's going to use it to test our faith. And we can know that he's going to provide wisdom for those who ask. And we can know that we need to remain humble in our lives and not pursue the things that are going to take us away from God. And, and many times in this country, that's where a lot of us as Christians are at, including myself, and many times. There's so many different things that are luring us away from trusting in God. And as a result, we're setting our mind on two different things and we're doubting him. And so, we need to understand that God wants us to trust Him and Him alone. And through the trials, He will build our faith, and we will grow stronger in Him. And we need that every single day of our lives. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for... The fact that you love us enough to speak to us through it, God. And I pray at this time that you will just help us to reflect in our hearts. Because many of us, Lord, are going through trials in life. Every single one of us are going through trials in some way, some form, some fashion, Lord. And I pray that you'll just help us to realize and to focus on your truths that you are with us. In spite of our emotions, in spite of the ways where we feel like you're not, Lord, just help us to focus on those truths, to let it become reality to us, Lord, as we go through our trials. God, thank you for choosing us as your first fruits, those who belong to you this morning. Thank you for choosing us, and thank you for showing your love in many ways, primary way, that you sent your Son to die for our sins, to be buried and raised from the dead, so that we can trust in him, have a relationship with you and eternal life. Thank you, thank, thank you, Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.